Want the reward? Do the damn work. Challenge yourself. Inspire change. Choice, not luck. What's happening, everybody? Todd Crandall with another episode of Ignite Euphoria brought to you by Racing for Recovery. And I have who I know as Junior on here. Is that what you want me to call you? Junior's perfect. Okay. Junior, it has been a while since I've seen you. What What have you been doing since last time I've seen you? Um, well, as you know, I'm a dog trainer, hence the shirt. Um, so just working with people, helping out with their dogs uh, since I... Uh, did IOP uh, with racing, um, just spending a lot more time with family, building those relationships back up and staying positive, positive and busy, man. So you asked me how long we've been doing these, and I'm pondering that now. Uh, I think when we first started doing them, I initially was doing video and audio at the same time. I didn't do to the best of my knowledge, I don't think I've ever done an audio podcast, you gotcha. know, done a bunch of interviews, but I started looking at other modalities of getting success stories like you out there. And this podcast just seemed to be the recent one. Talk about like how this even came to fruition because we just put it together mm -hmm. the other day, right? Go ahead. Um, so I work for glass city canine dog training company. Um, a while back, uh, Dan, right. Yeah. As a little, uh, a little dog named um, Remy. Anyway, they needed some help with them, so uh, they signed up with training with us, and then uh, he just got done with his boarding train, be it as Remy, so he stayed with me for two weeks, um, worked on his obedience and so forth, and in between then, when uh, we did his go-home lesson, uh, Dan said, hey, want to do a podcast? And I asked you a while back, so it's really... It's really cool that I have the opportunity to, you know, uh, yeah. share just some of my story as well as uh, helping out. Yeah, we're going to get into your story in a second, but it's, uh, I don't know if Dan told you this or not, but I was texting him to tell, to ask you to be on this the same time that he was asking you to be on it. It was going like wow. literally simultaneously. I'm like, dude, ask him to come on the podcast. And he was already setting that up at the same time. That's crazy. Yeah, it's just like cool. higher power or Absolutely. something. Right? Where did your fondness from, for animals, when, when did that start and why? Um, so years ago, um, I'm 35 now. So when I was about 10 years old, um, I was living with my mom who was a single mother. Um, she had some mental disabilities and so forth. But, uh, as a kid, my first pet was a hamster. His name was Papa. He was a very big hamster. And, uh, I adored that, that hamster for about five years. And, uh, one day I came home and my mom told me, uh, Papa's gone. So, um, it was just one of those things like I'll never forget Papa. I mean, so that it was something about it uh, when I get home from school, interacting with them or feeding them, whatever it may be, just gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me the sense of I'm not alone and or there's something bigger out there and uh, just a way to me it manifested. Well, let's get into your story a little bit because it's it's remarkable. Um, and now I'm I'm sitting here reflecting on some of the things you said in our support group meetings, some of the things you talked about in this office here, some of the things you shared in IOP. I don't, I want you to say whatever you're comfortable with, but at 10 years old, you're talking about Papa, you know, get into as much as you want 
or as little as you want about what you really endured as a as a young kid because it's remarkable that you've survived and are now thriving. I appreciate it. Um, so my childhood, in my view, was regular. Um, I mean, we were on food stamps growing up. It was just me and my mom. Um, she was permanently confined to a wheelchair due to uh, an injury to her hip they couldn't fix. So as I was growing up, say around 10 to 12, um, I started to become more, say, rebellious per se. We lived in an apartment complex, and, and I just wanted to be free more or less. So that started, say the downward spiral of, I began to manipulate my mother and it, it was tough because she had to depend on me because she was, she was confined to a wheelchair. So at times to where she needed to go cash her social security check or whatever it may be, um, and I regret it to this day, but I would um, manipulate her to the point of, you know, you're gonna buy me some cigarettes or do this and, uh, I just don't know at a young age how I even comprehended how to manipulate and or I've never forgotten it and I beat myself up over it. But, um, you know, that's just one of those things that I just try every day to give, give, give instead of take from people. So at 12, she moved away from the apartment complex. Um, I was staying with uh, a neighbor, and about a month after she moved away, she still lived in the same town, but I was staying with a neighbor. Um, we get a on the door, and I'll never forget this. It was summertime, 6 o'clock in the evening in California. Here, knock on the door. The lady that was watching me answered it, and two police officers walked into my room. And we were on a second-story uh, apartment complex. I had McDonald's that night because I remember eating it. It was by my bed. And as soon as they walked in the room, I didn't know why they were there or whatnot, but I looked at the window and I'll never forget it. They said, you could jump, but we're going to catch you. Um, and I said, you know, well, what do you need from me, et cetera? And he said, well, your mom said that you were somewhat kidnapped, which she wasn't the best parent. She left me there, but it is what it is. So... I went with them, and then they took me to uh, Mary Graham Children's Shelter in uh, French Camp, California, and from 12 to 17, I was in the system. Wow. I'm letting that sit in for a second. So what what were those next five years like? On a, Not only, I guess, physically the environment, but what were they uh, emotionally and mentally like for you? Um. It was a change from my regular environment. I mean, um, I was at the shelter not too long the first time around. Um, I remember when we got there, it was nighttime, it was raining, and there was a ton of frogs out. I'll never forget that. I don't know if they were coming out of their burrows or what, but um, I went to a foster home a couple months after that and stayed with them for about two years. Um, and as I was with them, I would see my mom. We would meet at uh, Family Protective Services. Um, and our meetings were me sitting in a chair, her sitting in a chair, and a social worker sitting in the corner of a room writing down notes. And uh, that was my normality. That That's what I thought family was and or getting together with family. So it, it, uh, it was just a little different. But um, after two years at the foster home I was at, wonderful people, but uh, I wanted to separate myself because I lost my real family per se, be it is that I was in the system. So after I left their house um, from 14 to 17, I was in and out of children's shelter, 
running away from foster homes. And it got to one point because I identified with the children's shelter. There was numerous young adults and kids there that were going through the same thing I was. And I felt, why should I be able to go to this decent home, but they couldn't find homes. So one time when I was at a, a foster home and I was there maybe two days, me and my brother ran away to the foster home all the way back to the children's shelter. I'll never forget that either because that was that was who we were. Like we identified with them, everybody there. I'm I'm asking questions, not I I'm not trying to offend you in yeah. any way, but man, I'm just so uh inspired and overwhelmed with uh got a lot of emotions. Every time I talk to you, it's this it's the same thing. I'm like, man, this dude has been through it. Uh you you don't know where your real dad was? Where was your real dad, I guess, is the way to ask that. Um, he is a printed name on my birth certificate, yep. as well as a, uh, a entry into like the uh, court documents in relation to where, his, where, he, where he is. Uh, I never met my biological father. I have pictures of him. Um, he gave me my biological name, which was Juan Antonio Castile. Um, but he could probably be sitting in this room, and I wouldn't know him. Uh, I think he might have got deported. Um, he was into trafficking and so forth. So um, it's just one of those things I never met him. So you mentioned earlier the word normal growing up. So you, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but from what you've said, that was what normal childhood was, right? Do you recall thinking like, I don't know, you're seeing other kids or watching stuff on television and having questions about what another version of normal could be, or did that never cross your mind? Um, at times it would rear its head, but we were so, say, entrenched in, say, that type of living, be it as um, she would take me to her mental health visits. Um, she was manic, depressive, schizophrenic, all that kind of stuff. So... I would at times see glimpses. I remember going to school, and this is another thing that sucks, but I remember going to school. My mom was a chain smoker. I remember going to school and uh, in elementary school, and I would be teased um, due to my clothes smelling like smoke, and I didn't understand why the other kids felt that it was funny and or that even to make a point of it. So... Um, I mean, seeing other kids at school, I mean, I had a couple of friends, but I guess the context would be, I, it was, um, I would see glimpses of normal. One of my childhood friends that went to school with me every day, I was on reduced lunch. You have to take your card, scan it. Everybody sees you. Everybody knows you're, you know, probably not financially well off. But I remember my best friend going up, uh, his name was Alex Cloud. Every day uh, we would sit in the lunchroom and he would always give me half of his sandwich. And I remember that to this day, and I, I still talk to him to this day. And uh, just little things, that was like little hopes or views of maybe normal behavior of, you know, sharing with others or making them feel important. You know, it's interesting listening to you now that you can tell the somehow you were able to have a feeling of love in you. You showed it with going back to the the group home or whatever mm -hmm. for the other kids. You you've, were showing it with Alex you know, you obviously you had it for Papa and now what yeah. you're doing today. Were you cognizant that you felt love at that time? At that time, no. As an adult outside looking in, I could see it in that regard. And to this day, there were scenarios to where I felt my mother loved me. I just think her mental disabilities and her um, 
schizophrenia and so forth just it was a different kind of love yeah uh it was a different kind of love yeah you're back to you know i'm sure you've heard it here many times you have empathy for your mom's condition right yeah when when um when were drugs or an alcohol a part of your life when you're out in california like that so when we were growing up um when i lived with my mother uh great mom (laughs) <laughs> she would have us roll her cigarettes. Um, so I remember as a young kid, we would have the bugler tobacco machine roller and we would pack the cigarette and roll it and pack and roll. And I, I would take a few time to time. And um, around that same time, one of my friends in the apartment complex exposed me to marijuana. Um, and I was about 12 about then. And then after that, it was, you know, it just was like a, a normal thing. What... Um... So how did you end up coming to Racing for Recovery? Let people know like this transformation from going from California and ended up in lovely Holland, Ohio, right? Yep, most definitely. So I battled with addiction from 15 to about 35, or 30, excuse me. So about 15 years of my life. Um, initially growing up, I was the kid that said, I'm gonna smoke weed, but I'll never do pills or any powder kind of stuff because I hold myself to a higher standard. <laughs> Ten years later, obviously that standard wasn't there, and there is no standard. I mean, any kind of uh, intoxicant obviously is not something that's going to show you love or you know something that's going to be beneficial per se. So um, I dabble with drugs in California. My adopted father, his name is Richard Julius Jones. He was the president of the Boys and Girls Club in Lodi, California. Hmm. He got me back on my feet, um, clean job, bank account. Uh, I'll still remember the first day I lived with them, I opened the fridge and there was actually food in there. Uh, I walked in the house and actually smelled good. Those were things initially that weren't normal, but it's something I'll never forget. Uh, I loved corn dogs as a kid, and I remember he used to always have them in his freezer. So context is when he retired, uh, our plan was to move back to Toledo because of um, his family, my family, he was born and raised here, so my aunts live here. So the context was he, in a sense, saved me. He got me off the streets. He got me off of drugs. He helped me tremendously. Um, he has nine adopted kids. Yeah. I'm the baby of the nine. Um, and when he was getting ready to retire, I made him a promise that he would never end up in a senior living home, that I would move away from my biological family from California move here to Toledo with him and make sure that I take care of him uh, as much as possible without putting him uh, in some kind of home because he could have did the same with me. He could have just said he was a group home case and they could take care of him, but he didn't. He uh, applied the love, the nurturing, sharing his family with my me, which they're my family now. So that's how we moved back here. We moved about 10 years ago and um, I was, uh, it, it was great. It still is great. Didn't he have his hips replaced? Knees, both knees. knees. Okay, how's he doing? Good, good. He had one 10 years ago and one two years ago. I mean, as you know, our program's made up of families and those like us that are battling addiction. And I've seen a lot of proud parents. But when your dad would come in there and talk about you, man, holy cow. I mean, pride should have been tattooed across his face. It just, he radiates pride for you. It's very humbling. Do you... Did you ever, I'm trying God, I'm trying to remember everything you've talked about in here during the years you've been at Racing for Recovery, but 
I don't want to use the word betrayed, but were there times where you didn't make the best decisions? And can you talk about how that affected both you and your dad? Absolutely. Um, and I'll never, his first knee replacement uh, in California was 10 years ago. He was in the hospital for about five days and then he came home, took care of him. Uh, that's when my addiction slowly started. Um, they gave him a, I want to say Vicodin or something of the sort, a bottle of it. And the betrayal aspect was as he was laying up in bed, and he's a strong guy, so he just took Tylenol. He didn't take the meds. Every day I would take a couple pills out of his uh, Vicodin bottle, and I would replace them with ibuprofen. Um, it got to the point to where the whole bottle was full of ibuprofen. And um, up until I got clean, I never told him about that. And the scary hmm. part was um, he has some kind of element to where he could only take like Tylenol or something of the sort. So the context is if he would have took something out of there, um, that could have really severely hurt him. And uh, I brought it up in group before. It was one of the lowest points in my life. Um, selfish, uh, betrayal. Um, and I know I can't fix, I can't go back and change it, but I know obviously now this last time around, we didn't have that issue, obviously. Right, right. How did, so how did you find us? Um, so when I went to get clean, when I initially, um, reached out and told my dad that I did have a drug addiction, um, it was very debilitating to me. I broke down, I cried, and I just felt that all the time that he invested in me was gone and I, I was living the secret life and, and he didn't make me feel bad. So when I went to get help, I went to flower uh, for a couple days. I got out of flower and I knew I need something more intense. And I'm not going to say, um, shine any other uh, rehabilitation facilities in a bad light, but I was at one before this one. Uh, it was a live-in facility. I was there, give or take, 60 days. Um, and it, it was suitable because the goal was getting everybody clean, uh, but it wasn't the kind of, and this might be a little pun, it wasn't the kind of empowerment that I felt I needed. It wasn't the empowerment of, we're here to help you, it more or less was, it's the empowerment of, we work here, you listen to us, you do what we say, because you got yourself here. Wow. And I had to take that on the chin because it was true. I had to take it on the chin. But the context is I was there for a while and um, I talked to somebody that had been doing an apprenticeship there and she turned me on to racing for recovery. So while I was living at said place, uh, I came to a Thursday night meeting. I liked it. And then I eventually left the um, place I was at before and then I did outpatient here for about a year plus. Yeah, that's the piece that I find remarkable for you. And first of all, I want to give you props. Well, I'm going to do that a lot today, but you're right. Our choices put us in places like this, 100%. But having said that, it's the obligation of said place, and I'll just speak on Racing for Recovery's behalf. It's our obligation, yes, to quickly say, well, okay, yeah, your choices got you here but how can we help you overcome those bad choices and make some good ones, right? Because anything other than that quick transition from, yeah, you did this to how we can help you, if it's constant, you know, putting down, you're, 
you shouldn't be doing this for people the way I see it, right? Absolutely. But an, uh, the piece that it is, I find another part very remarkable about your story is you did this on an outpatient basis. You never, you weren't a part of our lodging program, but you utilized what was offered here to everybody and had that work for you to get you to where you are a success today. So talk about what you what you learned here, what it was like, what, what benefits did we offer you that you actually utilized? Uh, the first thing that I learned here, and a lot of people probably will vouch for me, um, that I'm not my addiction. So at yeah. a lot of other places, you identify yourself as being an uh, alcoholic or an addiction. Hi, my name's Junior, I'm an alcoholic, right? The mindset of, yes, I had issues with drugs before, alcohol before, but that doesn't define me. That was one of the biggest tools that I got from Racing for Recovery. Um, when, even if you criticize yourself positively or productively per se, it's still over time it wears down on yeah. you because you're you're something that people are saying you are. So when I started coming to racing, the IOPs were very eye-opening. Um, they were very real, and they were not from a book. It wasn't scripted. Um, that's another thing a lot of people I see in just different forms of help and treatment. It more or less is turn to page 63, this, this, and this are common issues, so this is how we're going to help you guys in that. That wasn't the, the view or the mindset here. Yeah. Um, from what I got, um, everybody here helped each other when they were able to. That was a mm -hmm. big thing that you would um, talk about during the IOP meetings. If you don't love yourself, if you are still struggling within yourself, you trying to help somebody else is going to be more detrimental to them mm -hmm. as well as your overall recovery. And the context is before you could help someone else, you got to love yourself, man. Mm -hmm. um, and it might take years. Everybody wants to help, you know, everybody wants to be the chief. Nobody wants to be the Indians, but the Indians are the ones that go to uh, the front line, you know, and, and represent. How long were you here with us? How long were you getting services from us, let's say? I want to say close to a year to a year and a half, maybe. And it's been how long that you've been gone? Yeah. It was before uh, Corona or COVID, <laughs> corona. whatever they call it. Yeah, coronavirus. Corona crap sucks. Too. I had Don't that back corona. in the late 90s, <laughs> right? The coronavirus. Uh, so you've been sober for three years now? Yep. That's Absolutely. beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. Got some teeth removed and they gave me ibuprofen and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a blessing, man. It's um, anybody out there, drugs suck. Everybody's <laughs> lying. Um they don't make you feel better. They don't make you a superstar. I used to take drugs thinking I was going to be a guitar player or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. The 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 drugs are going to get me into the zone to where I'm just going to be this rock star, right? Yeah. But um, yeah. What's so? Let's talk about you pursuing your passion of of the love of animals. Where did you learn that and decide to do it? What happened? So in the heart of my addiction, um, alcohol, drugs, pills. I had gotten my first apartment, which was literally maybe half a mile down the street from my dad's house, which I've always lived with my dad. Um, one of the terms of me getting that apartment, I wanted to make sure that they would allow animals. So they did. Um, and I got Duchess, who's my German shepherd. Um, I had her trained back then. Um, and just over time, like the training that I did with her and the places that I took her, um, 
it was just it, it was awesome i wanted to share her with everybody um, at that point in time, I worked for Lutheran Homes, which is now Genicross, um, in the adult and teenage group home field. So I would deal with young adults and teenagers that had extreme behavioral issues as well as some, you know, suicidal tendencies or whatever it may be. So once I got Duchess trained, I would take her to the group home and the smiles, the, the, the life in these young adults' eyes when they could tell her to spin and she'll do she'll spin for them and they're like wow I made her do that like she listened to me like or they make her sit or whatever it may be um to me it was empowering for the youth but in the same sense it was that kind of um I know where I am and I know what I'm doing is the right thing kind of kind of like vibe per se um so it was very enjoyable and I would take her up there a lot so when when was it during your recovery that you're like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna get in this and start my own gig or whatever? So as I had Dutch's, I'll never forget this. When I was in my first apartment, I came home one night obliterated. I guess that's how you say it. I pronounced it wrong. Very drunk. Um, I put Taco Bell on the top of my dresser and I went to bed. And Dutch was like six months old. So I woke up the next morning. Taco Bell was everywhere. My wallet was chewed up, my Buckeye cable box was chewed up, and I couldn't get mad because I'm responsible for her. I shouldn't have left the food out. So after that, I was like, okay, I got to do something with this. I love this dog. She's my kid. I have no kids, but we got to rein this in, as you may say, right? And then when your quotes, <laughs> rein it in, right? So um, I started working with her a ton. One of my old trainers that trained her. Uh, knew a gentleman who were, owns Glass City Canine, and he was like, hey, you know, interview Junior. He's done really well with his dog, and, you know, he's thinking about becoming a trainer. So I interviewed. I did an apprenticeship where I rode around for about two to three months, observing uh, my boss, Dave Johnson, do dog training lessons with clients and all that kind of stuff. And um, at that point, I was hooked. And the segue for racing is when I came here, um, I'm not an athletic person, right? So basketball, soccer, football, all that kind of stuff wasn't my gig, but I made the connection of me working and training dogs gives me that mental stimulation of working out as well as at times even the physical, um, you know, because it could be exhausting. So at that point, I was all in. I love it. You're exactly right. That's what I wish people that are watching this and hopefully they're going to figure this out this is not all about running i know our logo has a running guy and people say oh that's all about running it's like no it's exercise but not even the physical part of the exercise it's exercising your mind you know and that's exactly what we're talking about you don't have to run to find the benefits of what we're doing here because it's it's a concept that is tailor-made to each individual but i do think you are our first ever official pet trainer that's come through here. So I don't know if there's an award for that, but we no. have to make one, right? No. So when you get that realization that how you can apply Racing for Recovery's concept to yourself, talk about that process that how, what you've been doing for the past couple of years to, I mean, live your life's purpose actually. Um, so one of the ways that I applied it to myself was um, that I'm responsible for my dog. So it gave me a, pers a purpose to get up. It gave me a purpose to better myself as well as better my personal dog. As I became a dog trainer, um, 
and working with different clients, one of the most rewarding things that was ever brought up to me, um, I had a lesson with a client. We were doing it at Sidecut Park, and her dog was unruly before training, and um, the dog just did phenomenal at the park. We worked on the dog's walk. We had people come up, pet the dog, kids, all that kind of stuff, and toward the end of the lesson, I asked her, I said, well, when was the last time Milo has been to a park? And this dog was seven years old, and she goes, he's never been to a park. We've never had the confidence or the know-how how to do this. And when wow. she told me that, it's not you know, me sticking my chest out and, oh, yeah, I'm the one that made it happen. But it was, one, her trusting me to help her train her dog, her dog trusting the process per se, right? Um, and then lastly, this little spark in the back of my head reminded me of Milo and myself. When I was a kid growing up in those apartments, we never went to the mall. We never went to Red Lobster. We never went to Disney World. So it just was this kind of connection to where if I could help people take their dogs to different environments, their kids' soccer games, you know, uh, graduation. I have a young lady that's in college and uh, we trained her dog and now her dog is an emotional support dog. So the stressors of college, studying, you know, drugs, obviously, you know, addiction and all that kind of stuff. Now she has the availability to um, feel comfort in that environment with her four-legged friend. You have done for yourself and others exactly what Racing for Recovery did for you. It's the same thing. It's beautiful to watch this, you know, progress to where you're doing. It's the same concept. You people that come to us, we're trying to show a form of sobriety that people have never seen. So it's like they're going to the park for the first time. Absolutely. Right. Not that they can't go to the park. They just have never been. But once you expose it to them, it's like, here's the park. Now it's up to them to keep doing it. Right. Absolutely. What um, how can people get a hold of you? Like, what do you how do people get a hold of you and what services are you offering to people? Let them know. Um. So I work for Glass City Canine. We have a Facebook page, Glass City Canine. Um, on our Facebook page, there's a lot of testimonials, reviews, before and after videos. Um, and um, if it's something that even in the, in the, in the workforce, like we're, we hire people all the time. So context is if it's anybody looking to get some training for the dog, we do basic obedience as well as advanced obedience. Um, but we also um, all, always are looking for kennel techs, young adults, people to walk dogs, take them out to go potty, interact with them and play with them. When I got clean and I uh, got back into the field, that's what saved me. And um, it was getting knocked down off of a pedestal and realizing it and just enjoying the small things. Um, there was a time I came to one of the IOPs and we were talking about having a good day versus a bad day. Um, and I remember it was my turn and I said, you know what? I stepped in dog this morning, yeah. but I cleaned it off and I would do that every single day. Step, step in dog poop because that's a hundred times better than waking up hungover. A hundred times better than hiding an addiction. So it was a little fun in a sense, but the context is we sweat these big things or little things and the reality of it is you got to just enjoy the moment. You just help people enjoy the moment um, and don't live with any regrets. Absolutely. Do you, uh, I know I've talked to you about training our, our pig Milo. Milo. Same name, right? I, uh, 
I need to do that. I want to have him come in here and be, you know, just a part of this thing. I mean, people would freak out if he's just walking <laughs> through your butt. He needs to get some, some he needs to go to the park, let's say, okay, right? Right. Fair Absolutely. Yeah. Is there uh is there anything you want to say that we haven't covered today that you want people to know about your life or your recovery or um the I guess the overall overall goal of me doing this is just um, if one person hears this that might have any kind of similarity to what I've been through, yes. um, just remember you're not alone. Um, reaching out at times will be tough and it can be tough, but at times what hurts more is you not reaching out and then your loved ones losing you. I mean that oh. that that just um, something that over time uh, me not being selfish realize that there's more to life than just me myself it's other people it's when you wake up in the morning and you're happy to wake up because you know what you're doing that day that's when you found your place your special place your your whatever your calling um so that's pretty much it just uh reach out talk to people and um always look for a, a giving a handout instead of a hand up and so Dude, forth. what a story man thanks for coming on here today appreciate it todd it's been wow. an honor man awesome please share junior story um if you or a loved one is battling any form of self-destruction please contact racing for recovery at 419-824-8462 until next time have a safe sober and productive day thanks a lot for watching